Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. You're super welcome to be with us at Lagan Valley Vineyard if we have not met yet. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the youth pastors here at Lagan Valley Vineyard and apparently going grey. So um, that's news to me somewhat. So... Um, <laughs> But you're super, super welcome. Um, Before I jump in, I just want to label something in the room. Uh, Last time I spoke, uh, I made a bold claim from here that Manchester United were back. And um, after that, we lost two games. And uh, suddenly, all the Liverpool fans decided to start texting me and City fans started to start texting me, which has gotten less frequent in the last few months. Anyway, and uh, I just want to label something that a good tree can only bear good fruit. And sometimes weed grow faster than fruit. And so that's all I'm saying. We're going to move on. Manchester United are back. And, um, and uh, we're going to win the league. Um, there we go. Um, you're super, super welcome. We are continuing our series in Isaiah 61, a passage of scripture that is close to us and our story as a community. Uh, we're going to jump in uh, and focus today on verse 7, which is a little conjunction verse in, in the middle of the chapter of Isaiah. So uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Isaiah 61. Uh, and if you're able, will you stand as we read from God's Word? Come, Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 3. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God and you will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion and instead of your disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in the land, and everlasting joy will be yours. Jesus, we thank you for your word that is a light and a lamp to us. Speak to us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, I'm going to share a story as an analogy, and I do, uh, before I jump into it, I do realize that this is a bit of a risk and may fuel the fire, but uh, it does serve somewhat to illustrate what we're wanting to chat about this morning. There's a certain time of the year when I begin to get texts on a Saturday night. And the texts um, go something along the lines of, Chris, I just, you're looking good on TV tonight. Uh, or it'll go something along the lines of, I just don't know how you're able to do TV on a Saturday night in church on a Sunday. And at the first like, few times I got these texts, I was like, what on earth is going on? Like, is Alan Lewis okay? Or is he having hallucinations in his house? Uh, like all these random texts coming in. And then I realized that uh, the voice was on. And uh, some of you guys will know Ollie Murs is a judge on the voice. He's already began to laugh. It's great. Um, and... For some of you guys, you seem to think I look a lot like Ollie Murs. Now, uh, like this is, I get this quite a bit. In football recently on Saturdays, I hear the opposite team saying, who's marking Ollie Murs? And, um, and I, can't, 
I, I can't quite tell if it's an insult or a compliment. It's somewhere in between, maybe. Uh, and I've definitely been called worse on a football pitch, which I can't repeat from here, so I'll maybe take that. But it's began to follow me around. A few weeks ago, I was around at my uh, granny's house. My granny's here. Um, and I was hooking out some of my old theology books from when I was at Bible college, because I'm studying again with WTC this year. Um, quick plug. You won't regret it if you decide to study with WTC. Hannah hasn't paid me at all to do that, say that. And um, I was talking about the books, and I was looking through them, and then I glanced over in my nanny's uh, dining room to notice something on the windowsill. Now, in, in your granny's, grandmother's house or your grandfather's house, you'll notice that like, windowsills are kind of occupied. They're like precious territory. They're occupied by photos of their children and their children's children, right? It's like it's the display that goes around. And I, I, this is no joke. I looked up at the windowsill, uh, in the dining room, and there was a 2019 Ollie Moore's annual sitting on <laughs> the mantelpiece. And uh, I had a moment where I was like, Granny, you do realize that's actually not me. Like, <laughs> just to clarify, super not me. And uh, she knew it wasn't me. She just turns out to be a massive Ollie Moore's fan. So there you go. Um, if you're one also, you're not alone this morning. Um, why am I telling you that story? Uh, there, there are certain things that stick with us. It might be uh, funny things that people have, whether it's a joke or a story. You might pick up names along or nicknames along the way. But there also are certain things that can seem to stick to us that are really quite detrimental and dangerous. They're not humorous, like the story of Ollie Moore's. They're probably a little bit more detrimental to our lives and our souls and our well-being. And these things can stick to us. They can affect us. They can be more than just a thought. And in this context, in verse 7, we read a second kind of segment of insteads. We've had it before in the previous chapter. We read these insteads. Instead of shame, you will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will receive your inheritance. They aren't talking about just a feeling in this moment. You see, double portion, what, what does that mean? That references grace. A double portion would have went to the oldest son in the family. And so if you had two sons, one would get 66% of the inheritance, the other one would get 33 It's not labeling a literal inheritance, it's talking about your identity. And what is happening here in Isaiah is saying, you're not your shame, but you're called a child of God. You're called a son, or you're called a daughter. In the same way, the word inheritance here refers to land. Land in the Old Testament was connected to our identities. It was something that was intrinsic to who we were. It's like saying your royal identity as a son or as a daughter. And then because of this, because of these insteads, joy will be the byproduct of what we live in. Shame and disgrace are traded instead for true identity as children of God. So shame, what is shame? Guilt and shame tend to go hand in hand. We talk about it in the same way, in the same sentence. And oftentimes, and for a large majority of my life, I could never quite distinguish the difference between guilt and shame. I knew what it felt like, and I knew the impact it had on me, but I wasn't quite sure what was the difference. You see, Isaiah isn't addressing a feeling here. He's addressing an identity issue here. You see, guilt in and of itself isn't necessarily totally a bad thing. It's actually quite neutral. 
Guilt is something inside you telling you what you're doing is wrong. People who don't feel guilt are quite dangerous people. Guilt in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's a tricky thing because what shame is, is taking the feeling of guilt and saying this is who you are. So I've done a bad thing and I feel like a bad person. That's, that's guilt. I've done a bad thing and I am a bad person. That's shame. We understand the difference. One is a feeling. One is actually a lived reality and an identity. And this is what Isaiah is talking about here. It's not a feeling, but it's actually an identity issue. And often in the middle gap between guilt and shame is where the enemy likes to attack us and grab a foothold and tell us that that's who we are. Shame as an identity for the people of God, the Israelites in which this is written to, was not a far off concept. They were continuously following God and then not following God, trusting in his goodness and then doubting his goodness. They would follow him and then they would wonder. And continuously we see God reinstating his commitment to his people, the Israelites. And whether it's their boredom or whether it's a crisis, they always tend to go back to thinking their way was better. They tend to go back to the things that they find comfort in instead of trusting in who God has called them to be. A double portion, an inheritance. This is an identity thing. Our identity is children of God. And our inheritance because of that is life and life to the fullness. In Paul, Paul's letters, he refers to us as co-heirs and heirs with Christ. Our inheritance is to have life, abundant, wild, extravagant life. We inherit that and we must inherit that with an attitude of stewarding that to the world around us. We talk about this as displaying and acting out the desires of God that are around us. We talked about it in previous weeks, what it means to be ministers and priests as we demonstrate God's goodness here on earth. See, these instead moments, these two little lines are identity shifts. And listen, we're the vineyard. We talk all the time about kingdom theology. We talk about identity and inheritance and investment. Most of you guys have heard Andy or Stu or Emma or whoever else talk about identity, inheritance, investment till it's coming out of your ears. You know it. Here's my sense this morning as we approach this text. My sense is that we don't need any further insights on our identity. We need to trust what we already believe. When it comes to living into our identity, and into our inheritance and stewarding that to the world around us, our biggest challenge is trusting what we already believe. The most urgent thing for us as we attempt to rebuild the ruins, as we attempt to display and dispense God's desires here on earth, is trusting what we already believe, believing our true identity. You see, the story of Israel is a story of highs and lows. And if we're all honest, it's a story that we can all connect to. And like Israel, we also read a story of a disciple in the New Testament called Peter, Simon Peter. He named Peter before or after Simon. And he is someone who also had high highs and also had low lows. And in these next few moments that we have, I'd love to skim over the highlight reel of Peter because I think for a lot of us, we'll be able to find parts of our story in his story maybe even the parts that we maybe might not necessarily want to. 
And so we're going to do a bit of a skim over. And so if you have your Bibles, keep them open. We're going to be jumping around the Gospels, um, keep you on your toes. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 1. Many of us think when it comes to Jesus' disciples that there was a call and then everything kind of shifted and changed. Jesus called these disciples, they then immediately dropped everything and then just followed them. And everything was kind of up until the right from that point on, the perfect formation journey of being molded into the likeness of their master and their Messiah, Jesus. But the reality is that's not quite what we discover when we read the Gospels. In John 1, we discover a group of men bumping into a bloke who they assume is the Messiah. Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, runs to his brother and says, we've found the Messiah, you need to come and see him. Now pause. Andrew and Simon, or Simon Peter, they were both Jews. And they had heard of a coming Messiah. They had read in the Old Testament in the Torah of a coming Messiah. But at this point, there had been 400 years of silence. That's what we discover between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years is like 10 generations. And they've heard nothing but silence, radio silence. And they bump into a bloke in the street and they're like, I think this is the guy. And so they run and grab, he runs and grabs his brother, rocks up to Jesus, and they have a really interesting first encounter. Peter show, Simon Peter shows up. Simon was a fisherman, and Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, you are called Cephas, meaning Peter, translating to mean rock. Nicknaming someone the first time you meet them is a pretty interesting experience. I'm not sure I'd advise it too much. I, I often have this with people who are new in our community where I'll introduce myself a matter of weeks in, and I'll be like, hey, my name's Chris. And I'm like, oh, that's your name. And I'm kind of like, what were you calling me before? And uh, I realized they were calling me like Iceman or like Ollie or whatever else, you know. So um, if you think you're funny, you're not the first, okay? So, um, but it's an interesting experience. But here, names carry a unique authority. See, names in this context that we're reading in, names were connected and tied to authority. It's why we're taught to worship the name of God. It's why we're instructed in prayer to pray in the name of Jesus. There is authority wrapped up in names. And so when Simon is being renamed here as Peter, there's something tied to it. There's an authority being tied to it. See, Peter has his first, Simon Peter has his first instead moment where he goes from being Simon to Peter. He has an Isaiah 61 moment, an Oaks of Righteousness moment where he encounters a living Messiah and he renames him in an encounter that rocks his world. Your name was a summary summary of your person. It touched on your vocation, yourself, your class, everything surrounding you touched on it. So this encounter wasn't just saying I'm giving you a new name, it was I'm changing your entire life. I'm rewriting your story and opening up your future full of purpose and destiny. And then we read that he just goes back to fishing. He has this incredible encounter with the, the Messiah, God in the flesh, who they've been waiting on for 400 years and heard tell of. He has this profound encounter that shakes everything for him and then he's like, I'll just go back to fishing. He doesn't follow Jesus. He goes back to fishing. Then in Matthew 4 is where we next see Peter show up chronologically. On an afternoon sea stroll, Simon Peter and James and John and Andrew are out on a boat. 
come follow me and fish for people, is the call from Jesus to these. And in an instant, they drop their nets and they follow him. Why does Simon Peter follow him? Because he's had a name change. Something has changed in his life and in his story. And so when the call comes, he answers it and he steps into it. And he becomes the rock upon which the early church is built. He preaches the infamous and incredible Sermon on the Mount. He's the pioneer of the early church and the second generation Christians. He's had a name change. Therefore, everything has changed, right? Not quite. In fact, we learn that this dropping of the net, this leaving the fishing post, was a short-lived breakthrough for Peter. The next time we see is, when we read in the scriptures, is Jesus teaching by a lake. And as Jesus teaching at the sea edge, he notices something in the water, which is two boats, and he notices one of the boats that belongs to Simon Peter. See, where's Peter? Peter's not on the sea edge listening to Jesus, one of his followers. Peter's went back to fishing. And what we can tell from scriptures, this is approximately like a four-month period of when he's renamed, then he's called full of inspiration, and then inside four months, he's just once again dwindled back to fishing. And here we see Jesus coming after him again. He instructs him, come out in the boat with me and cast it on the other side. In verse five, Simon Peter responds saying, Master, we've worked all night and we've caught nothing. Simon Peter then drops the net on the other side and caught loads of fish so much that they had to call another boat in. They couldn't believe what they had just seen. Simon Peter, realizing that this man was who he says he was, recalling the moment where he renamed him and then called him and then watched him perform a miracle, he's now sold out. He's in. He believes this is the Messiah and he falls to his knee and he confesses, I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will not fish for fish, but you were fish for people. This is a significant moment. So far, Peter's had his name changed with an encounter with Jesus and then he's gone back to fishing. Peter's had a call to follow Jesus in which he was all in for, but then he eventually it fizzled out and he went back to fishing. He gets interested, then probably gets bored and he just goes back to where he was before. Peter keeps going back to fishing. Why? Because it is the identity that he has constructed and he has created and he keeps wanting to drift back to his old self. Fishing is what he can control and what he can know. Peter goes with the identity that he has crafted and he has built rather than the name that he has given. He'd rather self-dependency than full surrender on Jesus. Simon Peter, when he was in the boat, fishing all night, caught nothing, but in a moment beside Jesus, he seen a miracle before his eyes and the nets were full. Jesus is talking Peter's language and he's saying, my instead, my trade-off right now is better if you will trust me. So Simon Peter pulls up to the shore and leaves the boats and nets for good to follow Jesus. Another instead moment for Peter. Instead of fish, now you will fish for people. And then he hits the productive stage. The stage where we call in today's culture the on-fire stage. It seems to be kind of limited to like that late teen, young adult age group. He does the Jesus stuff. He walks on water, 
gathers baskets after feeding the 5,000 and pretty much is the prayer ministry team for Jesus as he walks around and displays his ministry. In today's context, he was serving on the welcome team. He was serving on the AV team. He was in the worship team. He was serving in the kids' rooms. He was serving on the youth team. If he was allowed to, he'd be serving a gathered. He was at everything going. He was doing the Jesus stuff. He was caught up on it. He was, as we say in today's culture, he was on fire. Caught up in doing the Jesus stuff. And as we read in the Gospels, there's a shift, right? It goes from Jesus talking about the kingdom that he wants to establish here on earth to then it kind of tilts to the cross. His focus kind of changes. His face turns, we read in the Gospels, as he looks to his inevitable death, knowing what is on the other side of it. Matthew 16, we see Jesus explaining his death to his disciples, that he will be killed, but three days later he will rise again. Peter took him aside, the Messiah, and rebuked him, saying, never, Lord, this will never happen. Peter is correcting the Messiah. Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. Which, no matter how many times I read it, and no matter how many times I dig in the context, it does feel a bit rash, right? It's not something I'd recommend throwing around in a prayer ministry session. It's pretty abrasive. But you see, Peter didn't understand the concerns of the kingdom. He only understood his immediate concerns. Jesus' final night, he tells him that Peter, Simon Peter, will deny him three times. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will do it. Jesus gets arrested. Peter pulls a sword, wields it, and cuts off an ear. We then see Jesus heal that ear as he's being escorted off. Peter waits outside during the trial of Jesus. And in John 19, we pick up a scene where Simon Peter is sat over a charcoal fire, warming his hands. A teenage girl approaches him and says, aren't you a follower of this man, Jesus? And under the pressure of a teenage girl, Peter denies any sort of association with him. Second time he is asked and he denies any association with him. Then uh, an individual who was present at the time of Jesus' arrest that watched him cut off an ear says, aren't you associated with this man, Jesus? And a third time, Peter says no and denies him. At that moment, the rooster crows. The Lord looks at Peter. Peter at Jesus for a short period of time before he is taken away to his inevitable death. Peter stays and weeps, realizing that he has failed. And whether we can resonate with this as a failure, one of the things that I think we can all resonate in this space is the gap between the individual and the person we want to be and actually who we are or the decisions that we make. We often live with disappointment and that we want to be this person, but we're making these choices. See, this difference, psychologists have researched, it's the difference between lived spirituality and stated spirituality. And all of us live with this sort of gap. And we assume that our stated spirituality, the things that we state or pray or sing are our lived reality. We assume that. Our language and words almost betray our actions in that. You'll notice it this morning when we sing the song, I throw up my hands. And some of you are singing it like this. Now I know we're, we're pushing a button here on, on something, but 
what you need to realize is that that's a little glimpse into the difference between stated spirituality and embodied lived spirituality. I know you're like, well, what's the big deal there? And I'm I'm being a wee bit antagonistic here. But we see it in all different sorts of ways. We sing songs like, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere for you, Jesus. I just want to serve you. But in reality, you're kind of like, I don't want to go to Lorne. And I'm not fussed on kids' ministry. So you do the call, I'll throw in the terms and conditions. On the journey to formation, we are not formed by our preference, but by his presence. You cannot step in and serve based on what you're passionate about. Few people, I think, particularly as a young adult, discover what they're passionate and get to serve in it. It is the opposite way around. When you lay down your life, it is in that context where you discover what you're passionate about. We get it the other way around all the time. That's how we're supposed to live into it. When we are called to serve, if you're called to preach or you're called to lead worship or you're called to serve in any way, shape or form, you don't get to put an age restriction on that. And so often, this is not my point this morning, but I want to hang out here for a second. So often I experience the opposite of that where people only want to serve where they're passionate. It is not the Jesus way. Jesus served where he was persecuted and killed and mocked. It is the counter of what we're experiencing. And so if you want to discover life, how do you find it? By giving it away. And so being passionate about something isn't a criteria for you to walk through the door to serve God's people. It is a call and a command and requires obedience, not preference. Park that for now. We'll move on. There are two things that expose this stated and lived reality. We see it in the life of the Israelites and we see it in the life of Jesus. Not in the life of Jesus, we definitely see it in the life of Jesus. We see it in the life of Peter. The first one is boredom. Often the Israelites will follow Yahweh for a period of time and then they'll get bored and then they'll kind of just dwindle back their old way. The first instance in where Simon Peter follows Jesus, there's a four-month period and we can kind of assume that he was all fired up and full of inspiration and then it kind of dwindled out. He may have got bored and went somewhere else. Where do you go when you're bored? What do you run to when you're bored? Or in the analogy of Peter, where do you go fishing when you're bored? What are the things you run to for comfort or assurance or affirmation apart from the voice of God? Because boredom in a very unique way will tell you that and it will show you that. And also a lot of you are bored because you only want to serve if you're passionate. Figure it out. Anyway, the second one is crisis. COVID showed us this in a beautiful way. We see it in life of Israelites also where crisis hits the people of God. They often run back to whatever they can grab and hold on to. COVID-19 showed us the big gap between our stated and our lived reality. I'm not going to dive into this too much but as a church when these doors closed how many of our spiritualities were just dwindled down and we realized that actually our lived spirituality was not dependent on the spirit of God but on social interaction we need both but COVID-19 showed us something and I'm not going to talk anymore about COVID-19 because I feel like as soon as I say COVID-19 my right eye begins to twitch boredom and crisis expose these things you see for Simon Peter 
It was boredom that led him back to fishing. But we see in the denial of Jesus that it was crisis that ultimately derailed him. From what we can tell inside the Gospels, this is the greatest recorded mistake through the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus that we know of. Let me ask you a question this morning. As that rooster crowed and Jesus' eyes connected with Peter's eyes for that split second, and amongst the biggest mistake recorded in the New Testament, what was the expression on Jesus' face? Because how you answer that question will reveal a lot about your lived reality, your lived spirituality, not your stated, but your lived one. Is his face stern and disappointed? Or is it glancing in compassion? It will reveal a lot to you. See, regardless of what you say you believe in the songs you sing, crisis and boredom often reveal what we actually live and embody in our spirituality. It was for the people of Israel, it was for Peter, and it also is for us. The backstory of Peter is he was a fisherman and he was renamed by God. He had an oaks of righteousness moment. He was called to follow him and he did and then he got bored and he went back to fishing. Then he has a moment where he experiences once again the supernatural work of God, the grace of God displayed before his eyes and he gives up everything to follow him. He does the Jesus stuff and then he denies him. And when he denies him, he goes back to fishing. He keeps going back to fishing. He keeps going back to the old self that he has curated, that he has confidence in, that he has security in, that seems to soothe him when there's pain in his soul. He goes back to that every time. The question is for us this morning, this afternoon, is what closes the gap between a stated spirituality, what we sing and what we pray and what we talk about we believe and a lived one. What closes that gap? Because for some of you in this room, you sing songs all the time that declare over your life that you're forgiven and that you're set free, yet you still wrestle continuously with guilt and with shame. Some of you believe in grace. Some of you could write me an essay on grace. And yet, most of the week, you live into a performance-based mindset, seeking the approval of others. Some of you are comforted on a Sunday. But by the time Tuesday hits, we're riddled with anxiety. And we're doubting that God's even in this week, never mind our future. We are named by God. He renames us. And with that comes authority. But yet, sometimes, the loudest voice in your life or your peers. See, my sense is we don't need any further insights on identity. We need to trust what we already believe. So how do we do that? This is the journey from belief to knowledge. In the English, we assign knowledge with head knowledge, right? We just, it's all up here, and belief is all here. And so when we sing songs, sometimes that we believe in God, we might put our hand, even our hand on our heart as a way to embody that. That's how we associate it. But if we actually dig into the Hebrew, it's the opposite that we discover. The Hebrew word yada, which 
If you're from somewhere in Belfast, you say, you're da. <laughs> it's a good way to remember it. Yada has a reference to relational and experiencing knowing. See, know in the Old Testament often was referenced with intimacy or even with sex. When it talks about Adam knowing Eve, it's not like Adam knew Eve's coffee order. It's like, he knew her, all right? You can only know people, marriage, anyway. He knew her. You see, if we don't have personal experience, we just have theory. And theory is also known as belief, not knowledge. See, knowledge is like expressed through our senses. It's something that we experience and that we know. It's something that is embodied. Books can't help us with that. You see, there is a way that we can believe that stops short of knowing. There's a way that we can believe that also stops short of relational engagement. You see, many people in the New Testament believed in the miracles that Jesus performed, but not all of them followed. There's a way to believe that stops short. We can believe and yet not know him or experience him. There's a way to sing these songs on a Sunday morning as a declaration and not experience the lived reality of what they mean in our lives and in our hearts. Spiritual knowledge is experienced and it is embodied. You see, belief by itself is powerless to heal you from your past, to set you free, and to renew your mind. It is powerless when it comes for us to answer the call to rebuild the ruins that are around us. We don't need any more believers. We need people who know God and therefore make him known to a broken humanity. That is what the call is, to know him. And Peter's journey, his journey is a journey from belief to knowledge, from theory to experiencing the theory that he believed. We jump back into the story of Peter, three days after the resurrection, rumors start to run around that Jesus is now walking about, appearing to people. An angel appears to Mary at a tomb and says, go give this message to your disciples. This is that Jesus resurrected. And it says this in Mark 16, you read for yourself, especially Peter. Once again, we see Jesus' relentless pursuit after Peter. Why? Because he's went back to fishing. The thing he keeps running to. In John 21, by the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were fishing all night and caught nothing. Early in the morning, a man appeared and said, cast your net on the other side, a story that we're familiar with. And suddenly their nets were brimming full, so much so that they, they were fearful that their boats would sink. In that moment, Peter realized that the man standing on the shore was the resurrected Jesus. And before the boat could be rowed in, he jumped into the water and he swam towards him because he wanted a reunion, maybe, but most likely because he had some explaining to do. So the last time he'd seen him, he was denying him three times. When he arrives at the shore, we find a unique scene where Jesus is cooking fish over a charcoal stove. Let me ask you a question. What is the smell of summer? It was not rhetorical. What's the smell of summer? 
barbecues, right? As soon as you smell a barbecue in your neighborhood, you're like, we're having that tonight. I don't care what's being left out that morning. We're going to buy a barbecue. And suddenly, there's, you can't buy bread rolls for love or money. They're gone. The smell takes us back to an experience, right? What was the last experience of Peter with Jesus? Where was Peter? Warming his hands over a charcoal fire. You see, knowledge is expressed through our senses. We can know it through our senses. And in that moment of smelling that fire, there is no doubt that that smell and that sense took him right back to that moment. The moment of Peter's greatest shame. Why? After eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Scholars are divided by what Jesus means by these. Some think it's his disciples. Some other scholars, which I prefer, think it's, he's talking about fish here. Do you love me more than the things you run to when you're full of shame and hurt and pain? Do you love me more than the things you go to when you're bored or when you're in a crisis? Do you love me more than these? Simon Peter answers, yes, of course I do. Feed my sheep. Jesus asked him three times and he uses the word Simon, the name before he was renamed. Why is he doing that? Jesus has created and curated a moment that takes him, not in his belief, but in his experience back to the greatest moment of shame that he's lived through. Why? Because Jesus wants to heal him from his shame and only what is revealed can be healed. And therefore, he reenacts it. There are three denials over a, charcoal sto- sto- over a charcoal fire, and there are three questions over a charcoal fire. After those questions, he is reinstated as Peter, and then he is recommissioned back into the mission of Jesus on this earth. Simon was his old name. Peter was who he was called to be. Cephas, rock. You see, the question followed by a commission. Jesus shows up after his resurrection and after defeating death, the greatest feat, the thing that changes existence and life as we know it, the thing that we will forever marvel at as followers of Jesus as he is resurrected. And the first thing he does after is he cooks breakfast over a fire. Why? To renew shame. Why? Because it robs us of our identity. And Jesus is serious about dealing with that. You see, something happened here. And this is the point of Peter. See, Peter believed in the grace of God. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He's seen miracles before his eyes. He's seen blind eyes open. He's seen Food multiplied. He seen the dead raised to life. He had seen it all and he believed in it. But until this moment over a fire, he never knew. It was in this moment that it went from belief to knowing. He believed in grace. Now, before he sets off to establish the early church, he knows grace. He knows it. Up close and personal. In his weakest moment, he knows it. 
You see, knowing God, and why a lot of you guys show up here Sunday in, Sunday out, knowing God is actually the miracle that we all crave. Not believing in him, but knowing him. Beyond this building, beyond worship songs, to know him day by day and moment by moment, season in, season out, that is the miracle that we crave, and it is the one that we get. He has made himself known to us. We can't just believe in the love and the grace of God. We need to know it at work in our lives, at work in our past, and at work in our story. We can't just believe in a God that renames us. We need to know that he renames us. Peter went from believing to knowing, and his legacy is grace. He was the biggest failure, but he's not known. His legacy isn't failure. His legacy is grace. Why? Because he knew it. And because he knew it, he could make it known. He didn't just believe in it, he knew it. You see, what God wants to do through us, he first wants to do in us. He wants to work on us so that we can do the work out there. You see, my sense is we don't need any further insights on our identity. We need to trust what we already believe. We need to know ourselves what we already believe. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand as we step in the response. I'm going to welcome the Holy Spirit to come. And we're going to pray for some people. I'm not going to invite a band up. I'm not going to cure in a moment. We're going to welcome the Holy Spirit and let him do his work. Many of you believe that God is alive and active. We believe that nothing is impossible for him. We have seen it firsthand. Yet my sense for some of us, we stand in the middle of responses, almost a little bit of routine. Our familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. We're so familiar with this that sometimes we're unfamiliar with this that when we welcome the Holy Spirit, it's just something we do as a vineyard. It happens and then we go home. That is our stated reality is that we believe that when we welcome the Holy Spirit, he wants to do something in our midst. That has to be our lived reality that we come into this space open and welcome and expectant to experience God and therefore so that we can know him. And so I'm gonna ask us as a community as we step into this with no band and nothing else that we embody and we live what we state. If you're able, you stand.